Everyone's recording. You see megabytes counting up. You see bars. Bars, mm-hmm. megabytes, okay. yeah. Always double checking because we have misclicked that record button in the past and lost an episode. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Three, two, one. Well, well, welcome to episode 427 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, how are you doing, my friend? Marshall, I am I am very excited. I'm really energized right now, partially because I just had a sugary beverage, but also partially because, boy, oh boy, do we have a fun episode today. This one was just a joy to record. So I'm excited. How are you doing? I'm doing great for the same reasons. (laughs) Sugary beverages abound. Uh Uh, We have an interview today, y'all. It's been a long time since we've had an interview, and our guests today are fantastic. I just loved our conversation. But before we get into our conversation, we have a new Golden Ratio supporter on the podcast, Marshall. We've got Zeppelin. Zeppelin lets designers spend more time on design and less time prepping design files for the whole team. It is a way to get your entire team on the same page so everyone knows exactly what they need to build. It's a whole lot more than just specs, and you should get started for free today to learn why. Go to designdetails.fm slash Zeppelin. That's Z-E-P-L-I-N, designdetails.fm slash Zeppelin, and sign up for free. Thank you, Zeppelin. Thanks, Zeppelin. We also have some new VIPs, very important pixels. Another another good-looking group of folks joining the fam today, coming into the... The hot tub of design details, uh, very important pixels. The water's warm. We've all been in here for uh, too long at this point. My hands are pruny. Uh, but we've got some some fresh recruits. So welcome to the fam. Meredith Grubbs, Brandon Schmidtling, Pablo Gonzalez Day, Zach Shea, Pedro, Alex Cayayan, Justin Frugia, Austin Seeley, Shrink Ray, and Jeffrey Denise. Brian, I shrunk the vips. <laughs> If Shrink Ray is your name, that's dope. I think it might be a pseudonym, but all right, everyone. Welcome to the fam. Be sure to catch the first sidebar today. It's going to be a good one. If you didn't know, we're a listener-supported podcast, which means that every week people uh, head over to patreon.com slash design details, and they click on this big orange button right on the screen that says support design details. They click that button, they hit a pricing screen, and the number there shocks them. They roll back in their chair and they say, that much to support this podcast? And apparently everyone doing this is also cowboy. Old time prospector. <laughs> they say, all this good bonus design details content for just the low monthly price of one dollar? Well, there's gold in them Nar Hills. <laughs> there's gold in them waveforms. And uh, yeah, folks get excited and they click subscribe and they pay us a dollar every month. And in return, they get access to bonus episodes every single week. And that bonus episode is called The Sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. The sidebar is... uh, Sidebar, sidebar. (laughs) Sidebar. (laughs) The sidebar is usually just some extra little doodads and doohickeys talking about design and pixels and such. But today is interview day, which means Mm -hmm. the sidebar is bonus Bonus questions. questions. You want to hear bonus questions with our guests be sure to head to patreon.com slash design details click that pretty orange button and uh, consider subscribing for just a buck a month just a buck a month and um you know marshall just that whole accent little skit we did uh-huh. uh, yeah yeah 
preserved on the internet for all time. So <laughs> I know. don't let you know, that keep uh, you up tonight. I've been missing out. My, my improv career has just been wasting away. I've been yeah. on this podcast the whole time. What have I been doing? Here's the thing. I think we need to shake it up like this a little bit more often. You know, every week, let's just try and surprise each other with some little bit and see how far we can go. <laughs> okay. Sounds great. <laughs> okay. Here we go. All righty. Uh, thank you, everyone, who has supported the show this week. Yeah. Welcome, and everybody. With that, let me introduce our guests today. We are talking to Mark McGranigan and Adam Wiggins. They are designers, builders, software tinkerers, creative technologists, and they are currently building a tool for thought called Muse. It is an iPad app. It's a spatial canvas for basically helping you think. Uh, you can put your research notes, things you're reading, sketches, screenshots, bookmarks, and it has a bunch of really interesting ways to manipulate all of that information on a canvas, and they have invented some really wonderful multi-touch gestures. And uh, today, we got the chance to talk to them about the tools that they build, the software they're working on. They're currently bringing Muse from the iPad to the Mac. They're also podcasters. They have a podcast called MetaMuse, which is a podcast uh, not about Muse, the product, but about design and other creative technologies. And they also interview designers and engineers and other fantastic people who build software. So yeah, we get to talk about design podcasting, tools for thought. We get their advice on writing, building an audience, what they would do if they were a new designer starting out today, and a whole lot more. So with that, let's get into our interview with Mark McGranigan and Adam Wiggins. All right, uh, Mark and Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for, for joining. Thanks for having us. Uh, Mark, let's hand it over to you first. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with you or your work, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up here in this seat on this Zoom call at 9 a.m. Yeah, so my career has focused on making tools for creators. First uh, at Heroku with tools for developers, and then I worked on tools for business owners at Stripe, and now at Ink & Switch, the research lab, and Muse, our new venture, tools for creative professionals. And by trade, I, I've done engineering, although I, I've ended up doing a lot of work in product and management and, and I'm used even design. And so I've bounced around, uh, including doing a lot of design stuff. And I guess that's what brings us here. Yeah, jack of all trades. Uh, if you had to pick like, a, where do you find the most fulfillment in your day, just spending time, like you have three hours of uninterrupted, no meeting time, where do you gravitate on the maybe like design engineering like Figma to VS Code Spectrum or whatever your editor of choice is. Yeah, if I'm being honest, my wheelhouse is infrastructure engineering and it's cool because we're getting to okay. do some more work in that right now. But uh, I also really like what Adam and I call product architecture, which is thinking about how the thing is going to work and what the nouns are and what the verbs are and how the pieces fit together. And you don't get to yeah. do that all the time, but that's certainly fun as well. Mm. All right, Adam, would love to hear the same for you. Uh, how'd you get here? In, in your dark... Uh, Looks like a professional podcasting studio, but uh, <laughs> is not. Yeah, I'm Adam Wiggins, and probably best known in the tech world for being a co-founder at Heroku, which is a way to deploy cloud applications. But uh, similar to Mark, I, I see the theme across my career as being one of creative tools or tools that help others make things. So Heroku helps web developers in their work, uh, but then went on to found Ink & Switch, which is a research lab looking specifically at the creative tools, drawing on kind of the history of Doug Engelbart and Xerox Park and those sorts of uh, historic computing tools for thought thinkers 
uh, and trying to think about the future, not just kind of what's the next startup, but a little bit further out. Maybe if we think 10 years, 15 years in the future and computers for productive uses, not just, uh, let's say, consumption or entertainment or consumer uses. So what does the spreadsheet look like? What does the word processor look like? What do programming tools look like? And what do thinking tools look like given technology trends and given what future we might like to make come true? And it was part of that research at Ink and Switch where we were looking into tablets and multi-handed gestures and uh, spatial canvases and so forth that gave rise to a sort of the potential for a commercial product, and that's Muse. And that's what Mark and I are working on together along with a, a couple collaborators now. Awesome. Uh, we're going to come back and talk all about Muse yeah. and tools for thought. Uh, my, you know, my exposure to the tools for thought space in quotes, I don't know, is that the, the official term that we're using now? It's fairly surface level, so I'm excited to dig into that. But I thought where we'd start is the fact that we're all design podcasters. <laughs> hey. I don't know if y'all consider yourselves design podcasters, but Muse the product has a podcast associated with it that is not about the product, but about interviewing designers, technologists, creators. I suppose I call it a design podcast because I'm a designer and I listen to it to learn about design, even though you end up talking about other things so yeah i think that's right like our our tagline there is it's a pod metamuse is a podcast about product design tools for thought and having good ideas so we we do end up talking about a lot of how companies are structured or even just interesting weird tangents that we just happen to be interested in like say urban design uh, but yeah i think of it as a product design podcast first and foremost well if i can be just a little bit effusive up front it's one of my favorite podcasts it's very good because First of all, you get great guests, but also you both have such like a calm and measured and thoughtful approach to to all of the topics. And I feel like, I don't know, uh, Marshall and I are a little bit more like, uh, we're going to help you organize your Figma file or like fix your visuals or like think about leveling up at work. And y'all are like, how do we think about the future of computing in the next 50 years? <laughs> I'm like, oh shit, that's like super, super high level. Um So how about this? Let's start. Why the podcast? Do you have a product? You're building a business. Why even do this? Yeah, fair point. Honestly, I just kind of wanted to do it. But I think it comes from, yeah, and, and when we started it, you know, I pitched it to Mark, hey, do you want to do this? I thought maybe we would rotate in different folks from the team, which we do sometimes, but it's mostly me and Mark. And my goal was to surface a lot of our internal discussions. So part of, I think, doing great work at a company, whether it's product strategy, whether it's the marketing side, whether it's the engineering side, you produce internal memos and presentations and email, you know, your internal communication about trying to figure out what to build, what's the right thing to build, what do users need, what does the market want, all that sort of thing. And you see the result of it, you see the end output, but the behind the scenes is typically not surfaced. And certainly within Muse, for example, you know, Mark writes these absolutely fantastic memos just in Notion about engineering architecture or Leonard writes long memo, you know, we're working on the Mac app now uh, and he'll write a long memo kind of analyzing what existing apps do and what we might want to do for ours. And I read this and I go, not only is this great, but it almost feels a shame to me that, you know, there's five people on our team at any, you know, let's say at this point in time. And the, so the audience for this is four. It seems a shame, but it's not quite the sort of thing that you sort of put into a blog post. And so I think a podcast works well because informal and you know, you know that, that's the, the style of it, it's conversational, but you can surface a lot of that thinking, the why behind it, what are all the false paths we went down. And so 
one, I think it's fun to surface that. But two, for me, it's a sort of journal to look back on maybe later a, a, a document of things we worked on and our, and our progress and why we did it, not just what the end result was. Yeah. Did you approach this as an experiment where you're like, ah, we'll just record an episode? Or was there a bigger vision like, okay, we can capture all this stuff, but by nature of association with Muse, it actually becomes a marketing tool? Or like, what was the thread there that ended up sort of manifesting in those first few episodes? Yeah, well, for me, everything is an experiment. Actually, if you Google my Heroku values, I've got a gist from, I don't know, 12 years ago or something that specifically has that as one of the the points. So I think the first one we did, Mark, you, you can remind me, but we were on a team summit in Sedona, Arizona, and we just used the voice memo apps on our phone and went up into the attic, which I remember was freezing cold because it was winter, yeah. and just recorded ourselves topic, talking on a, on a topic for <laughs> 15 minutes. And then I kind of quickly edited that together and then basically let one of our teammates listen to it and just kind of said, is, is there anything here that's that's worth spending more time on? How do you remember that moment, Mark? Yeah, that was really fun. We recorded in this attic with our AirPods, so the you know all kinds of utilities going on in the background and stuff. But it was fun, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because this is how a lot of the work that Adam and I do together starts. Basically, Adam has a hunch. You know, I feel like there's something out there, and then we do some experiments together, and we we develop it out from there. So I thought it was a good example of that creative process. One thing that. I feel is really intimidating for people who want to start podcasts or start writing is this feeling that it needs to be like a grand project. It needs a brand name. It needs a domain. It needs a logo. It needs a tone. Like it needs all this stuff. I've been having more conversations recently with people like, I want to start a podcast. How does design details work? I'm like, well, it's kind of just been going for seven years and it's just been iterating for seven years. But when it started, it was scrappy as hell. I remember our first episode, very similar to y'all. We weren't in an attic, but we were sitting in my bedroom, like cross-legged around a laptop on the floor, and we didn't have pop filters. Uh, We just put socks on the microphones. We were just like smelling laundry detergent recording into these mics. And then that evolves. Uh, So, you know, you mentioned that this is a common theme for the two of you. How do you actually approach that mindset, that mentality of like, experimentation and scrappiness without necessarily maybe getting ahead of yourselves thinking about the brand, the vision, the the outcome. Names are an interesting thing there because when you give something a name, it becomes more substantial, whether that's a brand name or an internal project name, the name of a repo, something like that. Uh, and I think they're a big deal, but I also think there's a lot to be said for not getting hung up on precisely that thing. And a, as an anecdote I can offer you there is Ink and Switch operated for think about two years, year and a half before we named it. So we just called it R&D Lab. And so like, I, I don't know, we had a, yeah, any place we needed to stand in for the company name, it was just R&D Lab, which obviously is super generic and doesn't describe anything. It would never be the actual name. But once we knew we had something, then we wanted to invest some time in finding the right name. So yeah, um, I think it's good to have dreams, grand dreams. And, you know, you can start your I don't know, YouTube star career, just filming yourself on your, your iPhone or whatever. And you can dream of that day when you have a big, you know, production team and sponsors and studio lighting and whatever, that's all fine. But yeah, obviously you do well, you want to get started. And I also think though, you need to look for that spark, that thing that will make it, uh, what you're doing unique or what you have to say unique. It should be there kind of from the beginning, you know, diamond in the rough style 
rather than, uh, I don't know, I, I, I guess there is, you know, that a concept of making a bad first draft as a way to get started is, is like common, maybe Silicon Valley wisdom. And I agree with that, but there needs to be something there. It can't just be bad and you'll iterate your way to something good. I think it's more like there's some premise, some piece that you think, okay, there's some thread to pull here. And you can see that even though all the rest of it is, is so um, kind of basic or underdeveloped. What's the saying? Uh, all complex systems developed from a simple system that worked or something. I'm sure you know the, the quote by heart. I feel like that's a good one. I think that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. How about perfectionism? Like the I imagine that first AirPod recording did not sound good uh, and was probably a pain to edit if even edited at all. But I feel like it's there's also this perfectionism that can develop over time, right? Like now you have a body of work, you're further along in your career, you have like, here's Heroku, right? It's like, holy shit, that's Heroku. And then you want to do something new. And it's like, do you ever get in your head about, I got to beat myself, I got to beat my past self? Or And if not, like, what is happening in your brain where you're comfortable with the shitty, not content wise, but like the perception, the quality, the nameless thing being put out onto the internet for everyone to hear? I think this is actually one of the reasons podcasts are such a good medium. First of all, the, the people who tune into your podcast, it's a very deliberate act. They're not randomly stumbling upon it because of you know the YouTube algorithm or whatever, right? It's They, they want to be there and they want to hear what you have to say. So you tend to get a lot of resonance that way. And also, I think just audio is a very forgiving medium in a way that even something like blog posts are not because blog posts, they get you know, screenshotted and they get indexed forever. And it, it's just much easier to like, basically like quote tweet or dunk on a, something like a blog post. Whereas if you say something weird in a podcast, basically people just won't notice or they'll forget about it or they, they won't even bother to look it up. So I think it's a good, good medium for that. And the other angle here is, and we'll talk about this more when we discuss kind of the muse philosophy, but we have this idea of, of the creative process. And as you develop an idea, it has different characteristics of course, in the end, it's going to be very polished and refined and solid and very high confidence. But in the beginning, it's necessarily messy, uncertain, amorphous, evasive. You know, you, you can't get your hand on it. And you have to embrace that, I think. And, and podcasts are great because they help you basically go from point A to point B there. You start off with this idea that's just basically knocking around your head. And then by talking about it with your colleagues and guests, you can start to form it. And eventually, it might be developed and promoted up to a blog post on the site, for example. Right. But somewhere in that that zone from A to B, there's a point where you've got to ship. And I think, at least for me, what I worry about is the first impression can mean something, especially today, like attention spans are really short-lived. And that splashy blog post, that splashy tweet is a big opportunity. And to revisit it a month later and be like, V2 is out. Like nobody gives a shit about the V2, right? Like it's there's a new domain, go check it out, follow the new Twitter account. So somewhere on the spectrum of rough idea in your brain to like the polished result you you hit publish, what's your philosophies on or, or sense? It doesn't even have to be necessarily about the MetaMuse podcast, but just in general, like how do you, you figure out your own line where you say, all right, ready to show this to people. I'm aware of all the imperfections and what the V2 will be, but here's the launchable thing. Yeah, this is a big topic for me. Where where do you draw the line and decide to ship? That's true for products. You know, we we have that right now where we're working on the Muse 2.0 product, including a Mac app and some local first syncing. And there's a huge amount of stuff that goes into that. And we have a pretty grand vision for all the pieces, but we know realistically not everything will make it into 2.0. Some things will be 2.1 and 2.2 and so on. And it really is just a judgment call of combining 
what your users are saying with your own intuition. This is a place where experience and just being in the industry, uh, you know, a relatively long time and, and having been through shipping things and, and you, you need to, um, in some cases, have shipped something too early. Think, man, I wish I'd just spent another week polishing that so that it, these obvious flaws didn't get, I don't know, ripped apart when it got posted to Hacker News, for example. But then there's other cases where, for example, maybe you don't ship at all uh, because you're just sitting on it too long. One uh, lesson like that for me was um, there's a, a sort of a manifesto piece I wrote years ago called the 12-factor app that was in tandem with Heroku. And I, I was doing this kind of as a side thing. I actually didn't think of it as that related to Heroku, which in retrospect is didn't make sense because it basically came out of all the experiences that I and other folks had there. But I had been working on it and I had these bigger visions for it, et cetera. And at some point I was just tired of looking at it. And I remember thinking just like, I'm going to tweet it on Thursday, whatever state it's in. Um, I think, you know, really no ceremony or whatever. Um, and it actually went on to be a pretty lasting piece that a lot of people still reference even today. But at the time I shipped it, it was more this sense of like, it's not done, but I'm just tired of it. And yeah, then it turned right. out that actually in that case, in retrospect, I think I almost went too long or I was trying to polish too much and there were some good ideas there and I could have released it even a little earlier and not sort of just worn myself out on it. So I've had experiences like that, but I've also had the opposite experience of shipping something and just being embarrassed and feeling like I jumped the gun. So you have enough of those and then maybe you start to dial in your instinct of when a good time to get it out is. But real artists ship, for sure. Yeah, I find it's often helpful to have a sort of outwardly spiraling feedback cycle. So Adam, I remember with 12 Factor, you didn't just you know sit in your office and type that out and then ship it. You actually talked to, it was a small handful of people where you had this idea, I think we should do something. I have like 11 factors right now. You know, what should we call it? <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then by, by just getting a little bit of feedback and, and pressing it up against reality in a few different ways, you can shape up the idea. And in my experience, you can get that with three to 10 people. It doesn't take a whole lot. And then once you're there, often you, have, you can say, you know, this basically checks out, passes the test and let's ship it. And then there's more feedback after that point, but it's pretty well baked. Yeah, great point. I, the concentric ring form of shipping, you know, you see this in infrastructure deployment as well, right? Which is like you may, you don't deploy the new code to every server at once or you feature flag, you know, 5% of users in or something so you can kind of watch it and see what happens. So maybe there's a version of that with, yeah, whether it's a written piece, a product design or something like that, where it's not that you just, no one in the world has ever seen it but you, and then you push the button and now suddenly it's on a, you know, Super Bowl commercial. It's more like your colleagues have seen it. Okay, now you go find a colleague that's on the other side of the building that hasn't been paying attention to your project. You show it to them. You know, then you go from there to, for example, with Muse, we have close relationships with a lot of our longtime customers where they just write in with good bugs and stuff. But then I'll say, hey, do you mind like just taking a look at this and tell me what you think? And then they give us really good feedback and we can iterate from there. And then, in fact, we uh, even like beta features. For example, we have a, basically a backstage pass. So people who buy pro membership get sort of early access and then they can give us. So shipping is not this one-time activity. There is a, a series of, you know, kind of increasing numbers of people. And each time you feel like you, you sort of need more feedback, you go to that next layer. And then maybe the eventual thing is the final publishing to the world. It really is magical finding that person. Uh, like Marshall and I have this where we can show each other bad stuff or like half-formed thoughts. And there's like two pieces of safety. One is that you know they will tell you what they think. Mm. And then the other piece of safety is that if you've said something wrong, 
or like, I don't know, in the gray area of politically correct, I guess, like they're not going to think less of you, right? It's a person who knows you and your intent and they can just simply point out like, hey, this thing will probably be interpreted in this way. Maybe more of a risk in the the written world, less like product development side, but finding that person is like a, a pretty awesome moment. What, how do you both think about reputation in this sense, right? Like you have online reputations and now you're going to start this podcast and you're going to do it scrappy and you're going to put these unformed thoughts into the world. And I guess I ask this because a very common hesitation that I feel myself and see in other designers is they want to write more, but they're really scared of writing something wrong. And my experience has been everything I've written becomes wrong, right? Like I learn and, and develop my intuition and looking back on anything I've written or recorded in the past, I'm like, ah, I think now I would probably have said that differently, right? Maybe this isn't true for the both of you, but how do you think about that? Like reputational, am I going to look dumb doing this kind of feeling as a barrier to shipping maybe more personal work like the podcast or 12-factor app, like writing in public? Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. One is I do think podcasting is good for things that are like theses, you know, potentially controversial, they're not obvious, um, just because it's much easier, I think, to, to land those correctly in a podcast versus a, a written piece, which is, which is very easy for those to go off the rails in a variety of ways. Um, so I, I tend to now do those things in podcast form, but also more like brass tacks, career advice type stuff. I think putting good, coherent work on the internet under your own name is incredibly valuable. Just having that, just like having a domain name with you know your name and a f- few articles you've written, you're already in like the 90th percentile of career capital just because you've demonstrated that you can put things together coherently and, and say things. And I'll quickly uh, give Brian a plug here for being a, a very good example of that through his personal website and his writing and everything else he does. And in fact... I'll bring it back around. We're going to have you on our podcast here in the not too distant future and talk a bit about that, putting yourself online, personal brand, all that sort of thing. I, yeah, I think that's huge. And I think everyone should do it if, if you can, or, or if you want to sort of forward your own career in a way that's, let's say, compatible with being an introvert, which is how I, how I think of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, need yeah. to go pitch, <laughs> tell other people about myself. I can write about myself in my own private space or my own oh, that brings private own kind of right fears, word, but yeah. yeah. My own homepage and if other folks, you know, share some values with me, then, you know, then we can connect. Yeah. And I also think if you're looking for a place to get started on such a personal site, I would not suggest starting with you know what I would call opinion pieces. That's very high degree of difficulty. I like experience reports. Like here is how I you know compiled Nokogiri for Ruby seven point two or whatever, right? And those are those are actually very valuable. And it, it's hard to go wrong. You, you build some experience and confidence, and people actually find a lot of value in those. And then you can do higher degree of difficulty experience reports. Like here's how we introduce feature flags at our startup or something, right? Um, and then once you have some experience under your belt, you can you can go into something like a you know, quote unquote opinion piece. But you don't need to start there. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of writing about what to write about, but I do love that idea of technical objective things like here's how to make better Figma variants, right? Like, great, perfect, put it out there. And then that can evolve to, I just learned how to do this cool thing. Here's what I learned. Uh, but oftentimes people will will learn something and as soon as you've learned it, it feels immediately obvious. And so then you're like, why would I publish this? Like everybody knows this, right? Yeah. <laughs> and from my point of view, that's a side effect of constantly looking sort of upwards in the skill stack instead of remembering that like it's a ladder and there's always someone one step behind you who hasn't learned that thing yet. And so there's just infinite writing opportunities to literally just be like, what did I get better at today? I'm going to write about how I got better at it today. 
easier said than done, of course, but maybe an interesting philosophy there. Yeah, to, to return to the, the sort of the question of like feeling uh, like you put something out that's wrong or you'll feel dumb later or it's an act of vulnerability. All creativity is an act of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. That's part of what I think makes it so special from my point of view. And I will note that I think people who are drawn to design as a profession, I think have a tendency, it may be being sensitive just kind of generally is a superpower for design because you're sensitive to small details, you know, this exact color combination, how these pieces fit together. And, and you can put that, of course, to work in your design work. But I think that also has the flip side of then putting your work out into the world is very hard. And I've seen a lot of designers who it feels almost like an ivory tower kind of approach where they want to really be hidden away and only come out when the thing is completely perfect. Uh, and that, um, I think, can be a shame. Or there's famous even, like, examples from science. I think of Charles Darwin working on his theory of evolution, and he spent 20-plus years on it. And the only thing that forced him to ship was some other guy was going to scoop him. That's Wallace. <laughs> um, yeah. And in the end, and actually even The Origin of Species, which is sort of one of the most, you know, seminal works of thought in human history – Basically, in the intro, he says, this is just a summary and a brief sketch of my ideas. I apologize. It's so incomplete. <laughs> and, you know, it's 500 <laughs> pages or something like that of yeah. thoroughly researched, really deeply thought through stuff. And I, I think it's just when you have, when you are the sort to want to make something good, which means thoughtful, considered, all that sort of thing, then yes, the, the tendency is that means you never ship. Now, I have met plenty of folks on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe I came from that earlier in my career. Maybe engineering types are more that way. I'm not even sure. But the people who really embrace iteration and don't have any kind of fear or aren't worried about being embarrassed or whatever. And then, again, you ship too early. You can put stuff out in the world that's incomplete and therefore it's incomprehensible. Or, it, it, you know, it, it, you should have spent more time on it, basically. You should, have been, <laughs> you should have been more thoughtful, more considered, given it another pass before inflicting it on, on other people. You, you can have folks that tend to that yeah. side. And so – Typically, if I'm in a position of, you know, I've been through this in my own career, and if I'm in the position of giving someone else some career tips, I will try to figure out which, wh- where do they come naturally, and then try to get yourself to a sweet spot of be considered, be thoughtful, be really thorough, make it good, but then draw that line and ship it, learn from that, and then build on it in the next version, the next piece, the next whatever. Yeah. And, and you can also do some very lightweight feedback here. You can just post the draft in the group chat and Discord. You can just do a Twitter thread, ask two or three friends to read it over, and that will give you a lot of uh, straightening out. Uh, but, but by the way, one other angle I want to mention here, which is that if you're thinking about writing something but feeling like you might not fully understand it, you're, you're probably right in the sense that you tend not to, to really deeply understand something until you've taught it. So you can turn this around and say, I, I really want to learn X. I'm going to go write about it. I actually did this, by the way, with Go By Example which like hundreds of thousands of people have since used to yes. learn Go. Well, when I started yes. that site, I did not know the programming language. You know, I, I used it as a way to teach myself and also, by the way, to explore some design ideas that I had. But I've done that a few times in my career. If I really want to learn something, go to try, write about it. Now, you got to be, you got to know what you're getting into with that, right? Yeah. But if you calibrate it, And now that's like the, well. the de facto thing, right? Like that's where literally every person learns Go. That's crazy. <laughs> well, there's no one as well equipped to teach something than someone who has just learned it. That's my personal view. I feel like many times people who are experts in a field, they've known something so long, they've forgotten the delta of the mental state of being a beginner that doesn't know have the mental model or doesn't understand the skills yeah. and what it's like to be an expert. So I think someone who has just learned something is the perfect person to teach it. 
Well, I'm going to segue the hell out of this because it's time to talk about Muse, the product. Uh, and let's see here. First of all, let's get the high-level blurb about Muse. What is it? Who's it for? Why should this exist in the world? And then I want to talk about what you're working on right now, which is the Mac OS application. We can talk about what you're learning and discovering through a port from touch, iPad, gestural to large screen pointer. So whoever wants to go, uh, for people who aren't aware of it, what is Muse and, and why does it exist? Um, yeah, so Muse is an app for deep thinking. Right now it's exclusively on iPad. So the idea here is, depends on your domain, but if you're in a designer, you probably do a lot of your, uh, what we might call production work in Figma. But Muse is what you might use before you go into Figma. And there's a, there's a similar thing in other fields. Writing, you know, writing, you might open a text editor or a word processor, but Muse might be what you do before that. And so if you think of the creative process as a starting with you have an idea and you want to explore that, you develop that idea out, and then you go through a succession of different kinds of tools to help you make that more and more real until eventually you can publish it. And so typically this idea stage work is done on pen and paper, sketchbooks, whiteboard, maybe use post-it notes, index cards, that sort of thing. And then at some later stage, you go into your production level tool like Figma, and then you're, you're working on that. The problem with starting in Figma, of course, is then you're thinking about, should I use the 24-point medium weight font, or should I use the 28-point <laughs> uh-huh. regular font? I feel personally attacked. <laughs> <laughs> at that early stage, you just need to know the very rough shape. What is the user flow? What problem are we solving here? And so for me, the way I use Muse might be, for example, to pull a bunch of user quotes from our support channel, some screenshots of the existing products, some screenshots of other products, draw a couple of sketches and kind of put it all together and lay it all on this kind of virtual table or desktop. Um, because practically the, the app is a spatial canvas where you can put these different types of cards, whether they're text, you can sketch, you can drop in screenshots and images, videos, PDFs, and so on, and just kind of move it all around in a really freeform way. And it's purpose really, really messy and sketchy, and you have very limited ink options and very limited text options, and you can't get hung up on uh, you know, how exactly what the shade of blue is that I'm using here. There's only one blue, and you can use blue and you can use green, and that's kind of it. And so you're forced to stick to just the really rough shape of the idea. Love it. Okay. So one thing that we've talked about on this show in the past was desktop designers, web designers wanting to learn how to design for mobile and touch. And we've done episodes like, here's how to go from thinking in cursor to thinking in touch. Right now, you'll have announced that you're building the macOS version of Muse. And I presume you're knee deep in that. And I'm curious to hear about what you've been discovering. Obviously, you've designed for desktop and cursors in the past, but like, what's been the learning experience taking everything you've just described this early stage creative infinite canvas and bringing it to the Mac, what's been surprising or interesting about that process? Yeah, so we have a unique take on devices and form factors at Muse. So if you think about how, how people typically think about platforms, like you're making a video game or something, you know, you're, you're taking your game from the PC and porting it to the Xbox or porting it to the iPad, and it's like the same game but in a different place and has some variations. At Muse, we think of it more as a creative suite where you have different platforms for different uses. So let me describe how we think about this in terms of the creative process. We talk about the three-step creative process at Muse where you first collect a bunch of raw materials and inspiration and snippets 
Second phase is your like ruminating, sketching, brainstorming, ideating, forming, outlining. And the third phase is you're doing the production work of authoring, editing, final versions. And basically we think you need a different tool for each of those phases. So the most obvious and the, the best serve right now is the desktop where you have your, your power tools, your Final Cut Pro and your Photoshop and your text editors and your finders and so forth. And the phone is also pretty good for quick capture. You know, you see a tweet thread and you want to save that for later or you have a quick note you want to jot down to yourself. The iPad we think is uniquely good for that middle ideation phase. You're sitting back in your soft seating, you're sketching, you're brainstorming, you're comparing notes. That sort of thing is, we think doesn't really work as well on a desktop. So when we talk about designing for these different form factors, it's not so much taking the app and porting it to a different platform. It's saying, what part of the creative process makes sense here and how can that be served by the feature set on that particular device? So as we work on the desktop, to kind of come back to your original question, as we work on the desktop, we're focused more on those power user use cases where you're taking advantage of the full keyboard, the very big screen, the files and folders you have on a desktop. So things like multiple select and bringing in a lot of data at once and moving stuff around quickly and organizing and reading multiple things at once. That's the kind of thing you would do on a desktop. Whereas our tablet design is very focused on the like intuitive, literally touchy-feely stuff of, okay, I want to do some sketch, some notes here, or like move some stuff around with my fingers, stuff like that. So Muse for macOS is a different tool, complementary tool. It's a different tool in the same workshop for the same piece of work. So you have a, a chisel and a saw to work on a table, right? And you need both, but they're, they share a workpiece. And likewise, in Muse, your corpus will be synchronized across all these devices and presented in a way that's appropriate for that device, but you'll probably tend to use it differently in each place. And there's, you can basically do almost anything on, any, on either the iPad or the desktop. Possible exception is inking, which we require a pencil for. But it just has different focus on each side. This was my next question was, as people who have probably thought about this more than most human beings, like what's your maybe hot or lukewarm take on the iOSification of macOS? And conversely, like what's happening on iPad where we do now have the magic keyboard, keyboard shortcuts. Uh, it's still not quite to the point where you have the power controls or windowing or file system access that you would on macOS. But the iPad, you could squint and be like, yeah, it actually is becoming a more of a powerful tool for as a daily driver for people who work in technology, designers and programmers. What's your take on that sort of blurring of the, the boundary here between device and, and form factor? I think those two worlds are still quite far apart and they serve very different uses. So I would be surprised and disappointed if they fully merge them. I wouldn't be surprised if they try, but I, I think that would be a mistake. And here's why. Almost the definition of a pro tool that you see on a desktop is something where the user can devise and affect workflows that weren't foreseen by the original creator of the software. Because you have multiple programs, you have multitasking, and you have user-controlled files and folders. And you can basically create these workflows where you're moving stuff through different programs, like basically a pipeline, in a way that it really isn't supported on uh, iOS. And then especially if you get into things like plugins, extensions, scripting, those are completely forbidden on iOS. So it seems to me fundamentally incompatible to take that, that pro world, especially Mac, and put it in the iOS box. We'll see. I'll uh, also uh, reference folks to our 
MetaMuse episode, The Future of iPad, where we touch on this. And interestingly, I think me and Mark and Leonard, our other colleague who came on there, have slightly different perspectives on that. Uh, but I think the the big theme there was there's sort of the business or market side. Like if you're Apple and now almost all your revenue comes from the iPhone, so iOS is your cash cow, but you really need the Mac because that's where iOS apps get made. And uh-huh. um, not to mention that if they let that platform rot too much, they you know would be in big big trouble with all the creative professionals of the world. But at the same time, you know you do see where their business is going to pull them in the direction of sort of being more mass market and being more consumer friendly. And the things that are the things that make the iPhone great, for example, the fact that you don't have any files, that actually is a huge benefit for many average computer users who are just have, have never been able to understand hard drives or file paths or organizing their files and they just get lost with all that. They just want to check their email and check the stocks and move on with their life. And um, but files are in a file system are a great asset to creative people who are who are working more power users. And so there's just different needs from these different audiences. And I think to date, uh, it has been the case that, you know, the Mac and iOS serve these different audiences. And iPad is a little bit confused or, or I, we think is hugely under underutilized because it does get thrown in with the phone. And in fact, even when you started this, this question, touch versus pointing device, that implies the iPad and the iPhone are kind of in the same rough bucket. And we think that's basically why the iPad has not found a real home in creative people's lives. I think it is a truly distinct device that has as little in common with the phone as it has in common with the desktop computer. But it's not treated so by Apple, and I don't think it's treated so by developers. And I think the net effect is we're we're all really missing out on what tablets could be for us. Yeah, we call this transliteration, where you take a iPhone app and make it bigger or take a desktop app and make it smaller. Neither of them works well, we think, and and truly realizes the potential of the iPad. The iPad Pro, by the way, is the most powerful and sophisticated end user computing device ever created. It's not even really close. Like the, the hardware is incredible, right? But we're treating it mostly as a big phone, which is, like, like we said, a, a big disappointment. It's yeah. a fantastic Netflix machine. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. We, we, have a, we have a whole name for this. So we call it the nightstand problem, where People buy an iPad uh-huh. with the, the promise and the aspiration of, I'm going to use this for note-taking and ideating. And then sure enough, three months later, it's in their nightstand because they use it for Netflix only. Do you... Okay, I don't know anything about Apple's design process and philosophy, but I look at the latest update to Big Sur and I squint and I'm like, ah, the familiar elements from iOS are starting to land, specifically Control Center, where all of the affordances that we're used to with like a, a menu on Mac OS with like little drop downs and arrows that's been obscured to like these big round circles that you click on, but they don't really look like things you can click on. What's your point of view on that evolution of Mac OS? And is this a step backwards or something that we should just embrace as the blurring of the lines between what a, a button is across platforms? I think it's a bit weird. Uh, I think it does <laughs> potentially yeah. point to that natural merging. And by the way, Apple is not the only one that feels that market force, right? Microsoft's Surface platform gives you a touchscreen stylus device, but it uses Windows. And I think it has all the problems you would expect if you bring those things together. It's sort of not really a great touch device, but, you know, and, and therefore doesn't offer much above just being a regular laptop, other than you can kind of break it out into tablet mode and, and go into a full on sketching piece of software, but it sort of is a convertible rather than something where it brings those together. 
I will on the pro side of saying some amount of merging of the developer side of things has benefited us, right? So the way we're building our Mac app is that we can use the same code base using a technology called Catalyst, which essentially allows us to basically run the same binary on both platforms. And we were trepidatious going into it because we don't want, exactly as Mark said, a transliterated iPad app on your Mac. That would feel terrible. And in fact, we did first run it there you know, basically just compiled. It did feel terrible because the Mac yeah, is not yeah, a touchscreen. It, it yeah, it, yeah. It's just not, it worked, but in the sense that it just felt incredibly awkward. And so the work we've been doing all this time is to make it very Mac-like. But we get a lot of leverage from the engineering perspective that we share a code base and there are very many common paths. And happily, at least that the Catalyst technology at a place now where all the standard menu bars and all the sta- all the almost all the things you can do and should be able to do in Mac those APIs are accessible, but we can share a language, a code base, a framework. So we get a lot of leverage from that. And so my hope would be, I mean, who knows what happens inside the mysterious black box that is Apple, but my hope would be that they are trying to get that leverage while not getting confused and thinking that the devices are the same type 100%. or for the same use. Yeah, yeah, That's the tension, right? Like we can help uh, a 13-year-old who's learning how to program build a Mac TV, iPhone, iPad, and watch app all at once, which is mind-bogglingly cool. Very impressive. But you have these side effects of like, okay, what's the abstraction of a menu, right? Or a button. And uh, translating that across these different surfaces, especially to your point where like, these form factors are actually suited for specific kinds of jobs to be done and workflows that a person wants to enter into nightstand mode or or actually creative thinking mode. Yeah, and when you think about designing for these different platforms as well, it's not just sort of the input devices and affordances, it's also that each of them has their own conventions. And so part of being a good citizen or being useful is you know that your app, your tool is not the only one a person is using. You need to fit into that ecosystem that includes obvious stuff like drag and drop and copy paste, uh, but it also includes just kind of principle of least surprise type stuff. Um, and one really interesting thing designing the Mac version of Muse is on iPad, we essentially invented kind of everything. We reinvented all of the interfaces and made up all these new gestures and everything. That's actually what the research that came out of the research lab. And we felt that was necessary because iPad does not have good conventions on that. There's a few small examples or some kind of artistic apps like Procreate that have some gestures for undo and stuff like that, 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 you know, I, I don't, I don't mean to say there's no innovation there, but overall most iPad apps are scaled up phone apps, which means you operate them with one finger, which just totally loses all the value of that platform. So we were essentially inventing many, many new interface conventions. And that's, I think what makes Muse for iPad special. Coming to the Mac, we actually want to be less special because guess what? This is the world's best creative platform, has been for decades. And so there's tons of really well-established conventions and we want to conform to those as much as we can. So as much of the time designing Muse for Mac has been spent on analyzing those conventions, which are sometimes, you know, in the Apple Hig or whatever, but often they're, they're sort of unwritten. So selection behavior is a really good example. You know, if you have two things selected and you right-click on a third thing, what happens? Does the selection get canceled out? Does the third thing get included in the selection? And by the way, like even Finder is not consistent with itself. It does uh-huh. something slightly different if you're in a Finder window versus you're on your desktop. But for the most part, there are some really well-established conventions people are used to. They've been built up over time, and we want to just use those everywhere we can because they feel familiar and because because they're good. Frankly, they're very good. Yeah, and it's been reassuring. So we had spent a few years in the iPad basically saying, 
the entire world is doing it wrong. We're going to do our own thing. And we, we do think that was correct, but it was, yeah, it's, it's very nerve wracking to go out on that limb. Right. And you come back to the Mac and like, yes, yeah, basically selection is correct. Let's just do what everyone else does. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it's pragmatic as well. Like you can find a lot of leverage in, in the existing APIs and build faster. And, and then you get all these benefits of end user predictability. So one thing that we kind of kicked off this conversation with was talking about tools for thought as like a space, as a, I don't even know, a industry. Is this an industry now? It might go and, with field or yeah, community or okay. scene. Okay. Scene. Yeah. So my exposure to this has really been with like note-taking apps. That's the trend right now. It's the rage. You go on YouTube. It's how to use Notion to build a second brain, how to use Rome Research, Obsidian, like it is note-taking apps across the board, but clearly thinking is more than that. I think Muse is a good example. Like it's multimedia, it's a canvas, like multi-touch. Um, how, do, how do the two of you think about tools for thought as a space broadly? Like what other kinds of things should it encapsulate besides just note-taking applications? Yeah, I would describe tools for thought as a community perhaps or a scene, but certainly a culture. And it starts with some history. So I think the computing world and the technology world is one with a kind of short memory in some ways, maybe because everyone skews young or I'm not sure what. Maybe naivety is almost even valued, right? The young founders that don't know what's impossible and so therefore they can do something new. Uh, but the tools for thought scene tends to kind of lionize this uh, set of computing pioneers from the 1960s, 70s. Actually, even going back to the 1940s, there's uh, – a uh, fellow named uh, Vannevar Bush had a, an article called uh, about something called a Memex, which was kind of like a universal mind expanding. It was even before computers existed, but he he pictured a world where something every paper you ever read it could remember that, and you could go back and reference it. For example, later on you have ARPA, where they invented the internet and TCP/IP. Uh, you also have Xerox Park, where they invented the GUI operating system. What you see is what you get. Ethernet and so on, and so. There's many figures within this um, kind of tradition, like Alan Kay, Doug Engelbart, and quite a few others, who had this vision of, okay, computers are going to be here. We're going to have personal computers. This is just an incredible new world for both human ingenuity, creativity, being able to, you know, just imagine once we all have these devices on our desks. I don't know if they could have even imagined like fully like inner pockets, but just imagine what new things that will unlock in the imagined world where, for example, everyone could program. And everyone could program and write their own games and do learning. You know, schools would be built around this and all that sort of thing. And I think the reason this community is um, likes to go back to this history is it feels like we – Bicycle for the Mind is another one. I think Steve Jobs uh, repeated that, but I, I don't think he originated it, um, are basically the idea that it should be something that enhances our cognitive abilities. But if you look at kind of where we are in the last decade or 15 years, it's Facebook, Right. And it's, it's sort of a, okay, you know, it's good that we now have computing devices that let us stay in touch with friends and family and purchase products and get entertainment. Remember birthdays. Remember birthdays, that's important. Um, but you kind of feel like there was this beautiful vision and then what we actually are doing with this amazing, practically magic technology is kind of disappointing by comparison. And it's so little of the technology industry is putting its energy into 
yeah, things like the Humble Spreadsheet, you know, it's an amazing tool for thought. It's one of the best, but basically hasn't changed in 20 years. I guess, you know, Google Docs basically took a spreadsheet and put it online, but it's really not that different from Excel circa 1995 other than the kind of real-time collaboration. And it feels like we can and should do better than that. And happily, there's now uh, an emerging field of people who are trying to do that, both through the research world, human-computer interaction, and, and so on. Ink and Switch is part of that story. People like Andy Matuszek. But then you also have the commercial side of it. And I think um, Notion has probably has done the, the best at kind of bringing that idea. They very much are part of that tradition. They even use some of those figures in their marketing a little bit. Um, but then uh, Rome Research was another one that came along and I think really both help popularize the tools for thought concept. But basically, yeah, you mentioned note-taking. But note-taking sounds so trivial and diminutive and, you know, it's like, I'm going to remember to buy the milk. That's a note. But when you think about computers as thinking devices, externalizing your thoughts, you know, something like, you know, coming up with a grand theory, you're inventing calculus, you're discovering <laughs> evolution, you're doing great science or art or something of that nature. Notes and note-taking kind of just doesn't capture it somehow. Um, so I think it is true that, you know, something like Rome or even Notion, you, I guess you could call a notes tool, but that so feels like it kind of misses the, the point. And so when you talk about it as a, as a tool for thought, it elevates what you think it could be. Now, whether you think it, it, these tools like, like Muse, like Notion, like Rome, whether you think they, they actually achieve this grand vision, well, that's an exercise left to the listener. Uh, but at least that is what we aspire to be doing. And I do think tactically, tools for thought connotes right now the sort of collecting and categorizing group of software programs. Uh, Rome would be the most well-known there, where you basically save everything you ever see or write forever, and you link it all up, and you label it, and, and you group it, and stuff like that. It's in the same tradition also. With, yeah, Obsidian is another one I think that's gaining good traction, especially among hacker types. But there's also like Devon Think is an older one that's in that category. Even Evernote, I think you could, you could argue, yeah, it's note-taking, but it's it's like an extension of your, it's like a second brain, an extension of your, your memory. The logo's an elephant, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And one of the ideas with Muse is that the full scope of software to help you have better ideas is going to be broader than that. And having better ideas is not just a matter of writing everything down forever and categorizing it, although that can be useful. A lot of people like to do that. A lot of it is things like inspiration, colliding the right ideas, having the right medium, being able to use your body in the right way. There's all these other factors that go into creative process that's more than just you know how big is your box of index cards or whatever. And so one of the things that we're exploring with Muse is what are those things and how can we activate them for creative people? What you're working on is it's deep and profound, like this idea of computers sort of augmenting and enhancing the creative process and our ability to think and, and build. It's very audacious. And of course, you compared that to the relatively disappointing reality we live in today, which is social media. And uh, a lot of the financial incentives just pour back to maybe the more superficial side. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't even, I don't have some, some sort of moral judgment about consumer software, enterprise software. I think they're, they're very good and important and useful. It's just there's this third leg that we're, we're sort of missing. And it's incomplete if we don't also fill that out. That's all. So here's my question. Like, is there something to be borrowed from those other legs to make this third leg consumer friendly? And maybe the answer is no. But you can squint and be like, gamify it. You get points for doing stuff. You get streaks for adding to it over time. You have friends and leaderboard. Like, 
are those things, are you allergic to those concepts or do you think that there's something to be learned and borrowed from to make this like trick our monkey brain into doing more creative thinking? There's absolutely stuff we can learn from those other domains. And this is actually something we dig in on, the, on our podcast a lot. Like there's so much to learn from other fields. We think it's really important to to read a lot and explore. Let me give you two examples. One from enterprise software, which is the world that I come from, you're dealing with enormous scales of data. And so robustness, quality, performance, reliability, these become extremely important. And there's all kinds of stuff I learned doing that stuff for a decade that you can apply to this domain, which typically hasn't gotten that treatment. So you can have much better performance and reliability, something that we're using as we build out sync, for example. Uh, from the social side, I actually think that video games are an incredibly powerful thing to learn from. I'm not saying that you should put like loot boxes in your tool for thought or something, right? But not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but one idea that we have is that the, the process of developing ideas is actually very social. And we've hinted at it a little bit on this podcast, for example, in this idea of an expanding ring of feedback. Uh, developing ideas is something that's fundamentally social. And there's all kinds of interesting dynamics that are being explored with social aspects in games right now. So I especially look to Twitch and Discord for doing all kinds of, we can't have done a whole podcast on this, but I'm, ha and I'm happy to go into it if you'd like. Uh, but there's all kinds of interesting things about how you bring together communities and motivate them and, and moderate them and bring out exciting, fun, fun energy. So I think there's all kinds of, of good stuff to learn as well. And not, not to mention, by the way, just on a very technical level, video games, I think, are, are basically how from a programming perspective, most software should be built, which is that you have a fast programming language talking more or less directly to a GPU. And that's a reality that is now becoming more evenly distributed and will, I think, complete the process in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I'll add on to that and say, I think community we've already seen is huge that these, the various tools for thought. So for example, I think of Craft, which is a writing tool that I use that started on the iPad and has made its way to other platforms and is one I like a lot. And they have a really strong community on Slack. So you can go in there and trade tips and tricks and learn how other people are using it and get inspired because, yeah, humans are such social animals and we learn from each other and so on. So I think that's a good one. Another maybe more basic one to take from consumer products is just making it kind of fun and easy, right, and slick. So, for example, you know, when you think of spreadsheets, you think of something really boring and kind of clunky and just generic maybe, which maybe was fine in the past. But now you see a lot more just weird, interesting, stylish. They just have personality. I think it's something like, um, for example, Sprout, which is uh, similar to Muse. It's a spatial canvas, but it's more web-based with a little more focus on kind of these video chat docs. But they have a very kind of cozy, cute aesthetic that's very homey and, and makes the internet feel like a friendlier place. Um, right. And I think that sort of thing, we've, we've already seen how that can be very successful. Slack basically just took IRC and made it like fun and basically consumerized it a little bit, but it's fundamentally an enterprise product. Um, they just kind of borrowed that, you know, humans like things that look good and feel good and we like things to be fun and, you know, you can, you could bring that sort of stuff in. So I think bringing the sort of consumerization of IT style thing to what's otherwise these maybe more serious tools is uh, absolutely a thing we can and should do. Yeah, this is a thread that actually me and Adam have been pulling on recently, this idea of aesthetics. And the more I think about it, the more I think it's important for all kinds of different reasons. But let me give you one example. We're undertaking this incredible creative process. You know, we work 2,000 hours a year to have good ideas. And until a few years ago, the proposal that w was that you would do that, like looking at Google Docs, like how are you supposed to have you know amazing ideas if you're looking at this, this thing that works well, but is, is fundamentally uninspiring, it's like working in an office that's just all concrete, right? 
And if you, you think about it in terms of an office, we would never accept that. Uh, what we really want is environments that are beautiful, inspiring, that challenge us to do amazing work. And I think we're seeing more and more of that now in creative tools, which is great. Yeah, I think our, our go-to example there is always that uh, Notion allows you to add an emoji to every page. Mm-hmm. And it seems like just such a simple little thing, even trivial, it's sort of unrelated to its core functionality. Yeah, maybe there's a practical benefit that you can more easily spot something when you scan the page, but it just makes it more fun to be in or more pleasant or more just just brightens the place up just the same way that, yeah, an office that isn't just, it's it's the equivalent of taking that concrete office and hanging up a few pictures and adding a few plants. Yeah, I'm excited to see what the uh, hanging plants in, in Muse will feel like. Um, certainly, I don't expect to see Muse stories anytime soon, but uh, <laughs> never say never, right? So how about this? Let's let's just end. Uh, anything you want to plug, maybe where people should follow you individually and then plug for Project Muse or something else that you think people should should check out right now? Yeah, well, you can uh, take a look at Muse on our website, museapp.com. Uh, we've also got Twitter, MuseAppHQ is our handle there. We post a little demo videos with, uh, you can see someone's hands, you know, kind of manipulating a, a tablet in little 10-second vignettes. That's kind of fun. And then my personal website is adamwiggins.com. And my handle is Twitter handles underscore adamwiggins underscore. Oh, underscores, oh, no. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the single underscore options were all taken, actually. Oh, <laughs> what? That's yep. surprising. And then I think Mark is uh, markmcgranigan.com. So, yeah, you probably need to spell that or... <laughs> Links <laughs> just, in the show notes. Yeah, yeah go, go to the show notes or just go to the website and scroll on to the bottom and everyone's listed there, including me and Adam, as well as our designer, Leonard, who you might want to follow as well, as well as the other members of the team, so... Okay. Um, well, neither of you did it, but I'll also plug uh, the MetaMuse podcast. Yeah. I mean, what a joy. Thank you for creating it. Keep doing it. Uh, I've, I, oh, I don't think so I've much. listened to every episode, but I'd say my hit rate is hopefully uh, above average. I, I really enjoy it. So uh, yeah, keep doing that. And glad you're enjoying it. We, we certainly enjoy doing it. Good creative forge for unformed ideas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you, and we'll we'll catch you guys later. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having us. Nice. All right, team. We're going to pause here. We're going to wrap up this portion of the episode. Oh, no, but Brian, I want more questions and answers. Whatever <laughs> shall I do? You want more questions, Marshall? Well, <laughs> gosh dang it, why don't you head down yonder to the uh, Patreon slide bar? If you want to hear bonus questions with Mark and Adam, head to patreon.com slash design details for uh, some extra juicy, juicy bits. We talked to them about what they think is the most well-designed software out there today. We talked about something that they've discovered or learned while building Muse. And we also get their advice to young designers to talk about where a, a new designer starting out today could have the most impact on building the future of software. All right, that will be over in the sidebar. Marshall, I think it's time for cool things. Regrettably, we did not do cool things with Mark and Adam. So this is just yeah. you and me. Just, well, we just talked so dang much that we didn't really have any time left over. Yeah, so we ran just, out of time. It was all interview. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So just our cool things this week. Sorry to disappoint. Yeah. Well, let's do cool things. Just you and me, and then uh, we'll get everyone out of here, and our, our VIPs can go catch the rest of the interview. Cool. All right. Uh, you want to go first? Sure. I have a game this week, Marshall. This one, for me, it was just a no-brainer because I'm on a roguelike kick. I love this form of game. I love it. 
and I've been playing a lot of Hades recently on my Switch, and I was kind of looking for something a little bit different, just a little switch them up. So I had the Steam recommendation for a game called Vampire Survivors. Oh, what's that? Vampire surviving. What could be going on there? Click into it, and it was like a strongly recommend or overwhelmingly recommend, whatever the, like, what's the Overwhelmingly top positive, I think. I think it. Yeah, overwhelmingly positive rating on Steam. I don't know if it's still there today, but when I checked out, it was. And I looked at the price, and it was $3, Marshall, $3. So I think, I don't know who makes this. My, I don't know. It's a little steep, man. It's a little it's steep. It's like three times what it costs for the sidebar every month. <laughs> See, what you've just pointed out is very interesting, because I, too, live my life thinking in terms of multiples of a design details subscription. Like, when I go to the coffee shop, it's not $5 for a cappuccino. It's five months of design details bonus content that I drink. Uh, uh, me too. Yeah, yeah. It's a unit of measure. Really. Unit of measure. Anyways, uh, Vampire Survivors. It's got to be, I think, a person. It looks like a, a indie game. You are, it's like this 8-bit sort of old school style. The gameplay is literally just like the arrow keys and the space bar, maybe. Really simple gameplay. But basically, it's kind of like a waves of enemies are trying to attack you from all sides, and you just have to run around and, and kill them, and you get little crystals to help you level up, and then you can get weapons, then you upgrade those weapons, and there's little bosses and little secrets and Easter eggs. And then after you die, you have accumulated some number of coins that you can spend on upgrades for your next run. It is so simple, but it's really, really addicting. So the first night I got it, I spent $3, and I just played it for like four hours straight. I just couldn't stop. It was so fun. It's actually pretty hard to get coins at the beginning, so you keep having to do runs and you keep dying pretty quick, but then you figure it out, you get better at the gameplay, you start to figure out which upgrades are good, which weapons synergize well together. And uh, yeah, I don't know, it's probably total like maybe 12 hours of like solid gameplay, but for $3, for me, it's just a no-brainer. It's in a category that I'm having a lot of fun with, and the style of it is just so simple. It really feels like a relaxation game to the point where I'm like, man, this would be fun to have on like an iPad or something. I don't know if it'd be good on a phone. I guess it would work, but like an iPad or something. But even just spin it up on the PC and just, you know, arrow keying around was really fun. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, Vampire Survivors uh, for people who want, I don't know, hour or two of uh, good chill gameplay. Check it out. It's awesome. I, I wonder if you're big into the whole roguelike thing, you might want to check out Hollow Knight. Have you played Hollow Knight? No, it's on my list, but I also I am still working my way through Dead Cells. Um, I know Hollow Knight. I just heard of a new one. I think it's a Chinese one called Warm Snow. There's a bunch of really cool games coming out that I just don't have enough time to play. But also, Marshall, I don't know if you saw, I think today the new... Breath of the Wild Pokemon crossover came out, so I might oh. check that out because Breath of the Wild was sick. And so they made a Pokemon game in that style, and I've heard good things. So anyways, yeah, I'm overflowing with, with games. But yeah, Hollow Knight's on there. Nice. Well, cool thing, Brian. Thanks for sharing Vampire Survivors. Not bad. <laughs> Vampire Survivors. All right, what you got? I have a book. I recently finished it last night. It's a book by John Scalzi, who wrote a few other books. I think Red Shirts did well. Um, this book is wild. I told you about it a little bit last night, but I will recount it for the listeners. So most of the movies and, and TV shows and books that we read about aliens, like the aliens are the bad guys, they're an attacking force, and the thrust of the whole story is to beat the aliens, humanity mm -hmm. rise together, right? Yep, yep. Very few nice happy kind alien books yeah I where's think, the chill aliens at you know 
Well, have I got the book for you, Brian? It's called <laughs> Agent to the Stars. Okay. And so the aliens come and they're nice. They're cool. They are familiar with all of our popular culture because we've been beaming TV shows and shit out into space for decades. So they know all of our idiosyncrasies as a species and all the different weird shit that we talk about. And they know enough to know that they will not be received well because they look like snot and they smell like rotten fish. Mm, that's a nice sounding alien. Uh-huh. So if you're an alien coming from another planet, you're trying to like make friends with these humans, but you look like something that is disgusting and you smell like something that is disgusting, how do you introduce yourself to those people? Um, and the answer that this book provides is you hire yourself a Hollywood agent um, to figure it out, basically a PR agency. Uh-huh. And that's the that's the thrust of this story is a middle-level Hollywood agent gets tasked with this secret mission to figure out a way to introduce this brand new gross-ass species to, to humans so that we can better live together in, in harmony. And uh, it's a fun, kind of wild ride, but I really enjoyed it. It went really fast and lots of nice tie-ups to loose threads that he leaves throughout the story. Like everything kind of ties up into a nice little bow. Awesome. All right. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. All right, Brian, let's get out of here. Yeah, this has been episode 427 of the Design Details Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening and wanted to hear more conversation with Mark and Adam, there is more conversation with Mark and Adam. It's in the sidebar at patreon.com slash design details. You go and sign up for just a buck a month. Just a buck a month. Just a buck a month. You're going to get access to our bonus content. This week, bonus questions anytime we have a guest. But you also get access to our whole backlog of bonus episodes. And of course, that sweet sidebar going forward every single week. So thank you everyone who's a part of the fam making this show possible. And everyone else, I would hope you'll consider supporting us at patreon.com slash design details. All right, let's get out of here and we'll catch you in the sidebar or we'll catch you next week. Bye. You know, I, I purchased a New York Times subscription because you sent me that article on Wordle earlier uh-huh. and I couldn't read it. And then I realized that they charge four times as much as we do, Brian. <laughs> no, no, no. The New York Times charges a lot more. They just get you with that first year discount. $4 a month for your first year. Yeah, at their heavily discounted for one year, <laughs> they still cost four times as much as we do. So. Yeah, which frankly is bullshit. I feel like the amount of value and editorial content created by Design Details and the New York Times are roughly on the same footing. And the fact that they can charge like 20 times as much as us, it's garbage, mm-hmm. honestly. A travesty. Preach. <laughs>